Hello and welcome to the show. I hope you are very well. Let's fix addiction. If you want to give something up, you will never be free from that substance or that lifestyle choice if you think that by not doing it or by not having it, you're missing out, that you're being deprived. So, for example, if you're trying to give up cake, but all you can think is how amazing that cake would be and you're looking at the cake and I would be so happy and it would taste so good, you'll never be free and ultimately you will lose your willpower and you will ultimately eat the cake. So what do you do? Well, you remove that idea that you're being deprived and you understand that by not having that thing to which you're addicted, you're gaining rather than losing something. You're gaining rather than losing something. So for example, if it's about eating cake, you think to yourself, I'm going to give up cake. And anytime there's temptation to eat it, you think to yourself, well, if I don't eat it, I'm going to be thinner. And by the summer, I'm going to have a beach body. So suddenly by not having the cake, you're getting something, not losing it. It works brilliantly for so many aspects of addiction. So for example, beer and alcohol. Now I love a drink. I love a drink. I enjoy it. I love the taste of it. I think it looks great. It feels good in my mouth. The effect can be marvelous, very relaxing. I love a drink. I love it. I enjoy it. I like it and I love it. And it's great. A gift from the gods. The nectar of the gods is what they call lager. But, 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 um, if ever I have alcohol, two things happen. First of all, I change and that's not my fault. And that's not a failure of me as a human being, because that's what alcohol does. It is a drug and therefore it will change you. And I don't think that's ideal because you always want to be yourself. And you'll have noticed this with relatives. I had an uncle and he was a great guy. Uh, funny, warm, generous, delightful. But only until about 6 p.m. in the afternoon, early evening, because he would be sober during the day and then he'd get on the whiskies at six or seven in the evening and he would change and he would just get a little grouchy and a bit argumentative, a bit cruel, and he became a different person. Now, the bottom line is I don't blame my uncle. I blame the whiskey. It was the whiskey that changed him um, it didn't bring out a different side of him because that's not a side you would ever see if he was teetotal. It was something that happened when he had whiskey. Now, some people are lucky and they can drink and be what you would describe as a jolly drunk. Um, they basically have a couple of glasses of wine. They start giggling and fall asleep. But in the end, um, whilst alcohol is a gift from the gods, you must understand that it's a drug and therefore um, it, it, it's, it has consequences and it will change you. And that's always going to be hazardous. But anyway, I've given alcohol a lot of thought and I think it's a trade-off, okay? So one option is to be completely teetotal and never drink alcohol. And I think you're missing out if that's what happens. Because there are just occasions when you'll meet up with friends and you'll have a couple of drinks and it will loosen everything up. And even creatively, it can be quite good because you can just sort of change your mindset and you're kind of landing on a different plane intellectually because you've had a drink. And, you know, quite often you do get when I started working in broadcasting, I did have a producer that used to get us, get us all, um, take us everyone down to the pub, take everyone down to the pub and have a couple of drinks and then 
brainstorm ideas. Now, I'm not saying that you need alcohol or any drug in order to be creative, but that change from an external source can have an, a creative impulse. So it is, it's a lovely resource. It's a great gift, alcohol. And I just think it's there for those occasions. Um, you know, a friend's 50th, an anniversary, uh, maybe you're celebrating some work triumph. It can be something to look forward to. So I meet a really good friend of mine once a year before Christmas. And the reason why is because maybe 20, 25 years ago, I was walking down Oxford Street in central London. And I don't know what I was doing, but anyway, it was about four in the afternoon. And I bumped into this friend who was from university and we hadn't seen each other in ages. It was four in the afternoon. And um, I said, listen, what are you doing? Should we go and have a beer or something? So we went and had a beer at four in the afternoon. And that was going to be a quick beer. It became five o'clock, six o'clock, seven o'clock. Anyway, it was a whole evening. We wound up back at my flat at probably one in the morning, um, singing along to heavy metal rock music. And I think I had a roast chicken in the oven. It was a wild day slash evening, completely spontaneous. And after that, we decided that we would meet before Christmas once a year, early December, and we would have a couple of drinks and eat some food and have a great time. And that tradition has been going now for a quarter of a century. And it's something to look forward to. Am I going to do that with lemonades and sparkling mineral water? No, I'll be having the beers because I love it. But um, so it's, 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 it's a nice thing to have in your back pocket. I always also always relay this anecdote that when I was filming a documentary series for Channel 4, we were in the States and we got stuck at Dallas Airport and our flight was delayed. And I think it was something like a 1 p.m. flight. And it was delayed to like 9 p.m., an eight-hour delay. There wasn't really time or it wasn't practical for some reason. I don't know why, but because oh, we had a load of filming equipment with us. We like cameras and everything that we weren't just going to pop, pop to uh, Dallas and have coffee and whatever, see the town. So we're stuck in the airport. By the way, I love America, but American airports are surprisingly rubbish. It's like they haven't been uh, redecorated since maybe the 60s or something when JFK was president. They're really, uh, there's a couple of good modern airports, but a lot of them are really old fashioned. And um, yeah, they've just got 60s, 70s decor and, and are a good example of America's infrastructure, frankly, crumbling slightly. Um, so in a British airport, you'd be fine for six, seven, eight hours because you'd have all these restaurants, wouldn't you? You know, like every every British airport's got like um, some great bars. My favourite airport is Stansted. They've got a Weatherspoons there. You've got great shops, haven't you? Curries.digital where you can buy DAB radios and Bluetooth loudspeakers and headphones and all sorts of kit. You can buy newspapers. You've got bookshops. British airports are great. In fact, I'll be honest with you. The highlight of my holiday is going to the airport. That's the best bit. I honestly, the whole business about the beach and sun cream and hotels and ugh, what a hassle. For me, if it's like, I don't know, a week in Ibiza, the best bit will be will be Terminal 5 of Heathrow Airport. Um, I just love the experience. I love duty-free shopping. I like looking at different bottles of vodka and deciding which would be the best value. Anyway. So there was a point to this. Yeah, we were stuck at Dallas Airport with an unexpected delay. 
and the, the, the airport didn't have i mean we were we were airside i think and the airport didn't have uh like i think there was one shop open which was basically a newspaper shop that was it a hudson news what are we going to do so we went to the bar and we just drank cheap crappy american lager all afternoon regaled anecdotes told jokes made each other laugh and those six or seven hours flew by and then we just kind of tumbled into the plane and flew and I just thought yeah that was a moment where alcohol is is a resource it's a little thing a little gift that you've got in your back pocket and there's occasionally times to deploy alcohol and that was an occasion stuck at the airport what else are you going to do we had a few beers and we had a great time so that's what it's there for so I actually think the solution with alcohol is is special occasions um this ties in with a friend of mine has has a solution with booze which he calls none or nine. In other words, he'll either have none or he'll have nine. Now, I cannot authorise that because I think nine is too many, okay? I mean, it depends what, what, what you're having nine of, but nine drinks is too many. But I think the reason why he says none or nine is because of alliteration, N and N. So it's kind of snappy. Probably what it means is none or three. But there's a lot to this. Um, if If you feel that you drink too much or it dominates your life, you may need to get professional help and go to Alcoholics Anonymous and get support because it could ruin your life. You could have an accident, cause injury to someone else. You're going to affect your health. So if it's serious, go and reach out to professional help. Go and see your doctor um, or, uh, or, or, or reach out online to any number of resources that can help you with your drinking. But if you're somebody that thinks, no, 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 my, my boozing just needs a tweak, it needs a software update, um, then why don't you get away from this idea that alcohol is just part of your daily life? Okay, move on from that. Move away from, you know, a beer here, a beer there. It's Tuesday. And for some reason, I've got like a San Miguel in my hand. Why would you do that? It's it's Tuesday. What are you celebrating something? Are things going so well that you're having beers? No, treat alcohol as a special occasion thing and have it you know, let's say that you've been looking forward to seeing your friends. You haven't met up with your friends for weeks on end. You'd be like, first of April, we're going out for beers. Save yourself for that and look forward to it. Maybe go alcohol free for a week or two weeks before the first of April. And then when you're out, when you have that beer, you've earned it. It's fantastic. It tastes good rather than the drip drip. You know, I think the problem is that the way we market alcohol is that we treat it like a food stuff, like a beverage. It's not a beverage. You're not being hydrated or refreshed. There is no nutritional value to alcohol. Therefore, it shouldn't be part of your daily life. It should be for special occasions. Um, and I think that ties in with none or nine. None or nine is very good for generally addictive behavior because, for example, if you want to give up alcohol or any other drug, it's much easier to never have it, right? It's torture just to have a half a lager if you're trying to not drink. So just have no alcohol or we're on the beers. And I find that sometimes, like I might arrange to, to meet meet friends. I go around everywhere on a motorbike, which obviously is not going to work if I'm having drinks. And so I just make a decision. I will be getting a taxi. I have factored it into the evening that I have budgeted for a taxi home because A, um, I won't lose my license, cause an accident, some other horror. Uh, but also I'm being honest with myself. But yeah, I think just get away from that thing of, you know, oh, we've just come out of work and I'm, I'm going to have a beer, you know, make it special and 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 make it make it an occasion. 
Now, the reason why we got into this discussion about alcohol and either doing it or not doing it um, is because of my earlier comments about how if you feel that you're missing out on something, you'll never be free from it. You'll never be never be free from its power. So that is very true of of alcohol. Um, and as I was going to say, whenever I do drink, I always feel it the next day. I don't know about you, but I always feel it. So it can be very fun and it tastes great and everything. But I do suffer a little bit the next day. I feel a little bit muddy, a little bit tired, sometimes even a little bit grouchy. So if I've decided I'm going to go alcohol free for a month, rather than think, oh, no, that lovely beer, I'd love to have that beer, but I can't have that beer. It would taste so good. Instead, I'm thinking that's a whole month where I'm going to wake up feeling really fresh and I'm going to be really productive. So how do you get yourself off alcohol? Just think about how great you're going to feel the next day when you don't have it. So remember, it goes back to the addiction hack, which is if you're trying to give up something, don't have the psychology that you're missing out. Have the psychology that you're gaining something. So tonight, let's imagine you fancy, um, because I, I, I certainly get this when I've been away on holiday and I've been having drinks every day. I find that when I get back home, the first night back at home, I'm like, let's open a bottle of red wine. Why? Because I'm in that habit of having drinks every day. But I'm back at home, right? And the holiday's over and it's time to get back to reality. And I don't think you should drink every day. Um, so so that how do you snap out of that? And you snap out of it by going, I want to feel fresh tomorrow. I want to be productive. And if I don't have that bottle of wine or that glass of wine, I will feel fresh tomorrow. So I'm actually gaining something. Um, it works with smoking, for example, that if you're trying to give up smoking, uh, the issue is willpower. Now, willpower doesn't work because in the end, it's finite. It runs out. It's like a it's like a ticking time bomb willpower. It's just a case of you're playing chicken with your own psychology. How long can I wait before I crack and finally light that cigarette? So willpower is a complete waste of time. Instead, change your psychology. So if you don't want to smoke cigarettes tomorrow, just think, ah, oh, um, if I don't smoke cigarettes, right, that's that's 10 pounds that I get back, I will gain 10 pounds because that's how much a packet of cigarette costs. So I will have money. And with that money, I can go and buy a book or I can buy, you know, whatever I can. I can if I don't smoke for a week, that's 70 pounds. I can buy some amazing clothes for that. If I wait two weeks, that's a flight. That's a flight. That's a holiday somewhere. If I wait a month, that could be the down payment on a car. Do you see where it goes? So by not smoking, I'm gaining something, which is I'm gaining money. Um, similarly with, with smoking, if you want to give up smoking, you just think to yourself, well, um, if I don't smoke, then I will perform better as an athlete. You know, So I, I, I've got a friend who, uh, the reason why they gave up smoking is because they were a keen runner and they found that it was affecting their fitness. So they wanted to be fitter, that goal, that desire to run better and part be a better athlete was um, achieved by not having the cigarettes. So it works really well and it's a beautiful thing. Anything, anything that you are slightly addicted to or stuck in a negative habit consuming, just always think about what you're gaining by not having it. Um, have we covered that? I think we have. Right. Let's talk about how much free stuff there is let's talk about how much free stuff there is in the world. So basically, um, life is full of gifts. Life is full of opportunities. If you see an opportunity, grab it. Um, 
your career is not going anywhere and you get invited to an industry party, bloody go. Because at that party, you might bump into someone that will change your life. You must take opportunities. Anything that resembles an opportunity. And the only regrets I've ever had in life is not taking an opportunity. Um, very good example, actually. I was starting out as a comedian and I was uh, battling away trying to get gigs, no income whatsoever, and still learning my craft as a comedian. And uh, an interesting thing happened, which is that um, there was an advert in the comedy magazine Time Out. Well, Time Out is actually, it's, it's kind of an entertainment magazine, so with listings for cinemas, theatres and comedy clubs. And in the comedy section of Time Out, there was an advert from Channel 4 Television saying, we're looking for writers for a new comedy show. Uh, please send in 10 topical jokes about the news, a photograph of yourself and your CV. I couldn't believe it. My eyes popped out of my head. I'm like, what the hell? So I um, immediately wrote 10 jokes, got a picture of myself, sent it all off to them. And I then went off to do a gig a few days later and I met these other comedians. And I'm like, I'm like have you have you done your, um, have you sent that thing off to Channel 4 yet? And let me tell you that most of the comedians said, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. I've heard the show's really crap. Uh, another one said, oh, I'll, I'll never, you know, they're only doing that. They're not, they're only going to hire their own people. It's uh, it's not a genuine offer. It's not a real opportunity. Anyway, most of the comedians had reasons as to why they, I mean, a couple was laziness or incompetence, or maybe they were afraid that they couldn't write those jokes. Maybe they wrote the jokes, but didn't think they were good enough. Remember from uh, one of the early podcast episodes, do bad work, right? Better to send 10 rubbish jokes than not send any jokes because you're a genius and want to be a perfectionist. So anyway, they go, majority of friends did not apply for what was an obvious golden opportunity to work in TV as a TV writer for Channel 4. Why didn't every comedian in the country send off their jokes? How is it possible that more than half of the comedians I knew had not applied for this job? What's going on? I mean, it would be a bit like, you know, would you like some money? Um, just send us... Send us a picture of yourself and we'll give you a thousand pounds. You know, how much of a nudge do people need? Anyway, I took the opportunity and then, well, as luck would have it, they quite liked the jokes and they got me in with a bunch of other comedians who had applied. And then we had this day where we spent all day in different writing groups coming up with material. And that led to me getting hired as a TV writer, all because there was this opportunity I was on my on the lookout for opportunities at the time. And that's why I was I mean, I guess in some ways, you know, I've created the opportunity by buying time out every week because it wasn't cheap. It was like one pound seventy five or something. I was a struggling comedian, but I bought this magazine every week because of there was a, a little notice board in the comedy section. And it was always interesting to see what opportunities might be out there. But that's it. You'll be amazed how many people spurn opportunities. So anything that looks like an opportunity, absolutely a grab it with both hands. Grab, 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 grab. I was invited to a party in about the year 1998. And I was like, not all that happy at the time. And I was single and I wanted to meet someone. And, you know, I just wasn't really in the best place. And I got invited to a house party one evening. Now I was working in breakfast radio and I was exhausted the whole time because when you work in breakfast radio as a producer I was a producer then you have to get up at like 3 a.m it's awful 
and you go to work in the middle of the night. And it means that by lunchtime, early afternoon, you're completely exhausted. Now, this party was like the evening and it was Friday. And this was after a week of these early starts. And I got invited to this party. In fact, my friend said, listen, I really want you to come. Um, I've got too many girls and not enough boys, which is obviously a tremendous selling point. I think you'll agree. Uh, but I didn't want to go. And I was, remember I was in bed watching The Fugitive, which is a very good film starring What's he called? Harrison Ford. Have you seen The Fugitive? It's very good. I won't spoil it for you, but essentially it's a guy who's accused of murdering his wife. He's a top doctor. And the case, uh, the court case is a travesty. And he gets wrongly convicted of killing his wife and he goes to jail. And essentially the whole movie is that he escapes jail and he's just on the run. And the whole movie is him trying to prove his innocence. It's a great movie. It involves lots of disguises and ingenuity. And I watched that movie and I just thought, yeah, I could just I could just watch another movie tonight and not go to this party. But I thought, well, you know what? I've been single for a while. I'm not that happy. Um, I could just do with changing things up a bit in my life. So I dragged myself to the party. Anyway, what happened? I met the future Mrs. Dolan, all because I accepted that opportunity of a social event. Now, I didn't I didn't go to the party in order to like literally meet someone. But you're not going to meet anyone if you don't leave the house, is my point. And so. I mean, I made lots of mistakes and I'm a complete fool a lot of the time, but well done me for being invited to a party and actually going. It was an opportunity that was presented to me. And therefore, everything, there are so many opportunities everywhere you can think to mention. Um, so, by the way, an example of that is free stuff. OK, um, I was at Edinburgh University and this was from 1992 to 1996. And I don't know why, but it was a period in the history of Edinburgh as a city where a lot of people seemed to be moving out or moving into flats and they were leaving furniture and other bits and pieces on the street. And I just remember this because I, I'm a keen runner or I certainly was back in the day and I used to go, go running around the city all the time, two or three times a week. And I'd sort of see, I don't know, like a really smart chair or a chest of drawers or, or even like a TV or a video cassette recorder or, or anything else, a hairdryer, you name it, right? But there's just a lot of stuff that was on the street. And I think in some cases it was people just dumping. But in other cases, I think it would go on the street and then the local authority w was going to come and collect it kind of thing. And Edinburgh, Edinburgh being a lovely city, you know, there was some really nice bits of furniture out and about. So I used to go running and I would come home with tables and chairs and God knows what else. Sometimes I'd have to get my flatmates to come back with me and then we'd carry things to the flat. But amazing amount of free stuff. Now, that was really good when I was a student because I was broke and therefore to just get a free chair or a free this or a free that is lovely. Be careful with technology that you find in the street, because obviously you don't want to burn the house down with a faulty hairdryer. So you would need to get that checked by an electrician. But certainly it works beautifully for furniture. Since then, after my time at university, I got the bug for free stuff. And I'm always I mean, I'm obscene about it. So, for example, if I saw a T-shirt that was just in the gutter, covered in mud and engine oil and petrol and god there's some disgusting rag of a thing i cannot resist uh, not picking it up having a look at it and working out well if i was to wash this in the washing machine really hot with some detergent i could clean it up that's a good t-shirt so i have collected bits of clothing that have just been lying on the street i've taken them home washed them 
and then just enjoy them. It makes me so happy because it's free and it's been thrown away and it, it always has an extra value because it didn't cost you anything and that you found it in the spirit of adventure. So I'm obsessed now. Every day I walk around and I just I, I just have my eyes open. I don't proactively look for free things, but if I see something lying around, I mean, this happens very, very often these days, uh, which is that you'll walk past a house and there'll be a box and it will have books in and it, it will have a note saying, take me. And it's like a collection of books. Uh, there was one place where, where there were a box of DVDs and there must have been a hundred movies in there. And I I just went through it painstakingly, went through this book and collected about maybe 10 or 15 of the DVDs, which interested me and took them home. That's like 15 movies. How much would that cost? Well, a movie tends to cost about £10 for a digital download, doesn't it? So that's 150 quid of free movie that I have acquired. How exciting. So it's everywhere. So do look out for free stuff. The uh, The two best examples of really great free stuff that I found was um, once when I was out running, and there were two bin bags outside a house and it said it had a note saying free, take me. And I opened both bags and it looked like an entire generation of children's toys. There was a Buzz Lightyear, which was working. There was a um, couple of train set things like Hornby train set, a couple of like engines for Hornby, which are very valuable. Some books, a puzzle. Honestly, just someone's entire childhood in two bin bags. I couldn't believe it. My eyes lit up. So what I did is I I was out running. So I stopped running and I just took the bin bags and just carried them home. Quite heavy, quite cumbersome. And I had my two sons and I said to them, "Okay, you can choose two items each from these bags and then the rest I'll give to charity. So, you know, my eldest son, he took the Buzz Lightyear and whatever they shared up, uh, but they took about four items in total. And then the rest I took to a charity shop, which obviously is more sensible than leaving it in the street. Um, those people were obviously quite lazy because, I mean, if you're listening in the United States, then it's a thrift store, right? It's a charity shop. Um, that's really where you should be dumping stuff you don't need rather than on the street. But people are lazy and that was just the most amazing treasure. The other great piece of treasure that I, I found was in the front garden of a house. Now, that's a bit tricky, isn't it? Because that's not on the street. And I saw a Casio keyboard just in a front garden. I didn't go into the front garden. I walked past and I just spotted a keyboard like on on a bin or it looked like it was being thrown away. So you must make sure if you find free stuff, you've got to make sure it is actually for free. So if, if there's any ambiguity, then ring the doorbell and check. It's like, oh, there's a bag of toys outside. Are you getting rid of it? You know, make sure that they're not sort of moving house and the removal trucks around the corner and you've just stolen some valuable item. But um, as long as you're clear that it has been given away or dumped, then grab it. But I wasn't sure about the keyboard because it was in their front garden. So I rang the doorbell and they opened the door and I said, hi, are you throwing away that keyboard? And they said, yes, uh, we don't need it anymore. We're not really sure if it works. Uh, I think they lost they lost the, 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 the um, cable, the sort of charging the power cable for it. But of course, I noticed being a Casio that it was that it would work with batteries. So I said, that's no problem. I'll put batteries in and I might try and get hold of a cable for it. They said, sure, take it away. So I took this amazing Casio keyboard. It had all the settings on it, like a drum machine and various melodies built into it already. Different sound effects for the different for various modes. You've got regular piano mode. 
You could make it sound like a trumpet or a violin, uh, rock music, electric guitar. It honestly was quite a miraculous device. And a good one of those new, maybe, maybe 150, 200 pounds. Well, I got it for nothing. And I took it back. At that point, I just had the one son. I took it back to him and he was only about five and he just loved it. He was obsessed with it. I put the batteries in, by the way. So I didn't I didn't get a cable because I wasn't sure also if it would blow up or something. But with batteries, you don't have to worry too much about the safety aspect because it's not connected to a power supply. And he played with this thing for months, if not years on end, and then became a very keen piano player, all because of a free keyboard. And that's because I've always got my eyes open for an opportunity. Now, the free stuff everywhere, right? That's just a metaphor. Okay, it's not just about finding objects on the street. It's your whole life. Anything that looks like an opportunity. So let's say you're at work and one of your colleagues says, hey, we're starting this little voluntary group, right? In the, the, the four of us are going to meet on Tuesdays and we're going to develop this new product um, idea. And it's outside of work hours and it's not obligatory, but a few of us are really keen to develop this new product. Um, and if anyone else wants to be involved, then just let us know we're going to start next Tuesday. You're like, there you go. Go and do that. Join that group. Almost like the comedians who didn't apply for the comedy writing gig, you will find that most people in the office will not take that opportunity because they'll be like, oh, well, Tuesday night, I'm normally I'm normally in the pub on a Tuesday night or um, I, I don't know, I, I've just... I just want to relax and get out of work. And also there's no money in it. What's the point? Um, there's a very, very nice line in King Lear by Shakespeare. And it's, it's, um, oh, reason, not the need. In other words, don't think about why you need to do something, right? Understand that it contains within it value. Don't, don't analyze what I'm going to get out of it. Oh, reason, not the need. In other words, don't reason with the need. Don't think about why am I doing this? You just do it. Um, I remember that when I was publicizing my book, I wrote a book called The World's Most Extraordinary People and Me with HarperCollins. And it was based upon my documentary series about extraordinary people like the tallest woman in the world and the smallest man. Very fun book to write. Great job. Really enjoyed doing it. Um, and I had an excellent publisher and she she said to me um, that you've got to go around the country and you can go and do talks in bookshops and stuff like that. And I said, yeah, but what if there's 12 people in the bookshop? How's that going to turn me into a publishing phenomenon? And she said, just do it. It all helps. And if you think about it, look at politicians. They knock on doors, don't they? That must feel hopeless. Um, in the UK, we have constituencies, which are about 60 or 70,000 people. And you go and knock on 20 or 30 doors. That's a drop in the ocean. What's the point? Well, they all do it because it's worth it, because you never know who you might meet, what opportunity may arise. So remember that Shakespeare line, reason, not the need. OK, don't analyze what am I going to get out of this? So if you look at the great entrepreneurs, let's think about Steve Jobs and um, Wozniak what was his first name. Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. I think they were both called Steve, weren't they? And these two men, they built Apple as an amazing com company that changed the world. But when they started like designing circuit boards and building a computer, you know, they didn't think, oh, what am I going to get out of this? And when am I going to be a millionaire? They did it because they were passionate about the product. They were passionate about computers. And it was an adventure for them. It didn't feel like a job. It was almost like a glorified hobby. They didn't analyze, you know, why am I doing this? What, what, what is my payback? Um, Sting says that a lot. Sting, the musician, he says music is its own reward. In other words, just writing a song and creating it is already the gift. 
any any money, anything that accrues from it is a sort of side effect. Um, the same with uh, Jerry Seinfeld. Um, he always talked about he talked about success and money and stuff. And he said in any industry, if you get good, the money will come. Right. So you don't chase the money, chase being really good and the money will come. Get good and the money will come. Get good at what you do, delivering value for your employer and the money will come. Because if you're that good and then you threaten to leave, they're like, well, we have to keep you. What do you want? What can we give you that you stay? That's how all. And then what happens is that you're working for a company and you're so good that another company wants a piece of that. They want a piece of that, baby. And that's a great way to negotiate, by the way, because if somebody offers you, if you've got a job and you get offered a job by someone else, uh, what you say to the person offering you the job is, oh, it's very nice of you, but I'm very happy where I am. But thanks anyway. That's how you negotiate, because then they'll be like, well, we'll double, we'll double it, we'll triple it. And that's uh, marvellous. So, yeah, just grab those opportunities and um, see see what you can um, see what you can find. Everything is a potential opportunity. Um, and one of the big things is to get up in the morning and leave the house and go somewhere because nothing great will happen if you stay within your own four walls. So if you do feel stuck in life, even just going down to your local cafe and having a cup of tea and getting some ideas together for what you might like to do already moves you on because, you know, if you physically move, you're down in the cafe, you have a little tea, which is stimulating and perhaps you bump into an old friend and that lifts your mood and they ask you why you're in the cafe and you're like, well, I'm a bit stuck, but I'm not sure what to do. And your friend says, oh, have you tried this or you tried that? And and that's how it all works. So you must um, you must facilitate these uh, these opportunities. Mouth ulcers, aren't they terrible? I grew up with mouth ulcers as a child. I was plagued with mouth ulcers. And I don't know why. Maybe I was an anxious child. I wasn't getting enough sleep or my nutrition wasn't right. Who knows? But I used to get these mouth ulcers. In fact, I still do sometimes. Um, I quite like mouth ulcers now because it's like a diagnostic tool. It tells me that I'm run down and it tells me that my lifestyle is suboptimal. Um, but yeah, so I got them as a child a lot and I still get them occasionally, but much less because I'm really disciplined about looking after myself and feeling good, which is why, for example, with alcohol, it's an occasional treat rather than a regular thing. If I was regularly having beers, I'd always have mouth ulcers because just it depletes you. Alcohol depletes you. So anyhow, anywho, um, I really, really love this solution to mouth ulcers. There are different products. For example, there's this stuff called Bongella. And it's a gel and it goes on to it. For me, it doesn't work. It doesn't, I, I, I've never, they're good people. They're very nice people at Bongella. It's a nice word to say, isn't it? Bongella. But I, it doesn't cut the mustard. Um, so here's what you need to do. If you have a mouth ulcer, you need a product called Corsodil. Have you heard of Corsodil? Now, this is a global show. And therefore, if Corsodil is not available in the United States, South America, the Antipodes, Asia, Africa, then um, I, I apologize and, and I'll try to recommend something else. But Corsodil here in the UK is a mouthwash and it contains chlorhexidine diglutinate. And it says, treats gum problems, bleeding gums, irritated gums, mouth ulcers. And it really, really works. So what you do is you take it, you do not dilute it, right? You need full strength. And you take a big old mouthful of it. You don't drink it. You mustn't swallow it. 
and you just focus it on where the mouth ulcer is. So let's imagine the mouth ulcer is under your tongue or, or somehow, you know, in a gum somewhere, somewhere in your mouth. Just focus the liquid onto the direct place where the mouth ulcer is. Okay, so you've got the liquid is sitting on the mouth ulcer and do that for two or three or four minutes. Now, be careful, right? Consult your doctor. Um, if you're finding it's you're burning your gums or something, uh, then you must stop doing that. But for me, I, I just I spend ages making sure that that liquid makes contact with the mouth ulcer. And then I spit and then I, I rinse my mouth out with cold water. And I find that the mouth ulcer, although it physically remains, I don't feel it anymore. And it nukes it. Okay, Corsodil will just nuke your mouth ulcer and it will take another couple of days to heal. But it doesn't matter because you can't feel it. You'll be able to see it, but you won't feel it anymore. Um, I don't know how it works. Uh, I think there's an element of numbing, but the, the numbing would only last, wouldn't it, a few minutes or an hour or two. Whereas I find that it's the pain is gone forever. So I think it I think there's a bit of numbing and I think it also is antibacterial and I think it just kills the ulcer. But anyway, Corsodil is brilliant for mouth ulcers. If that doesn't work and you're listening somewhere in a territory that doesn't have it, you might easier be able to get hold of Listerine, which I do know is a, a, a brand that's available in lots of different places on the planet. And um, Listerine Transform your oral care routine by using Listerine Total Care twice daily. Uh, I don't think, by the way, I don't want to interrupt my friends at Listerine because they're good people at Listerine. They're very nice people. And it's a nice word to say, isn't it? Listerine. But um, yeah, I don't think you need to. I don't really believe in this whole antibacterial thing. I think that w we should coexist with bacteria. We always have done. But we're trying to get rid of the mouth ulcer. So um, yeah, Listerine will work. It, it's maybe not quite as potent as Corsodil, but I have used Listerine on mouth ulcers before. Again, ages in the mouth, just as long as your mouth can tolerate it really. And then you spit it out and your mouth ulcer will be neutralized. Um, it's the only thing that's worked for me. And I'm a veteran of mouth ulcers. I'm one of the world's leading experts on mouth ulcers. A word of warning about Corsodil, by the way, if you have plaque, and let's be honest, most of us do, if you have plaque on your teeth, um, regular use of Corsodil will stain your teeth. And the reason why is the Corsodil will will react with the plaque. And so you could risk having slightly brown edges to your teeth if you use a lot of Corsodil. But what happens is if you go to the dental hygienist, when they remove the plaque, you will lose the stain. They get rid of the stain because your, your, the clean part of your tooth will not be stained by Corsodil, only the plaque. So in some ways, the Corsodil is useful because it tells you where the plaque is. But yeah, just a little warning there that you might get stained teeth. But I think it's worth it to be, uh, to be mouth ulcer free. Right. A couple of other bits and pieces before we go. Oh, my God, we got so much we could talk about, folks. We really do. But it's exactly... 42 minutes into the show. So I, I think I'm going to have to wrap this up. OK, well, look, we're, we're going to do more things uh, on the next show. But let me give you one final inspirational piece of advice. And it's from Warren Buffett. And Warren Buffett is a billionaire, one of the richest men in the world, a very wise man. He's called the Sage of Omaha, I think. And he's an investor and he made his fortune by buying stock in companies when other people were not buying stock in those companies. So he bought stock in failing companies and he invested when the market was going down or even crashing. And then when stuff is growing in value and looking like a good bet, he would not buy. So he always 
purchased uh, when stock values were low of any given company. And it's the opposite of human nature. Human instinct is safety first. Look at that. That company seems to be doing quite well. Let's buy shares. Um, you want to buy a company that's in trouble because that's where the profit lies. The potential for growth is unlimited from a failing enterprise. Now, by the way, I'm not a financial expert. I don't want you to use your life savings buying a company that's about to close down. But it's a broader philosophy about taking a chance when others will not. We are, as human beings, pack animal and everyone is attracted to success. But your job is to be brave and have a backbone and just say, my instinct says that although this is this particular idea that I'm going to pursue is very unfashionable. I'm going to do it anyway. So for example, let me tell you podcasts, right? There are officially too many podcasts. And that's exactly the moment where I started doing podcasts. So basically what's happening at the moment now, there there are, we've reached peak podcast and the number of people starting new podcasts has fallen through the floor. And it's because people have thought, what's the point? There are so many podcasts and we've 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 reached saturation no one's ever going to beat joe rogan so i have got into the podcast business at the very worst time when everyone's getting out because it's saturated and i love that it's a very warren buffett thing to do to get in at the worst time it's counterintuitive you know just think opposite to other people and a lot of things can open up as a result. And the reason why we're pack animals and we go with stuff that looks like a surefire hit is because we're risk averse, we're lazy and we're afraid. So the line from Buffett is that he said that as an investor, he's greedy when other people are scared and he's scared when other people are greedy. Right. So shall I repeat that? He's greedy in other words, we'll invest like crazy when others are afraid to invest and he will not invest and be cautious when others are not cautious and they're investing like crazy. Um, and I think it's absolutely brilliant. Uh, proof that that he's right is A, he's an extraordinarily successful investor. But also, if you look at the Wall Street crash, the stories going around were that Everyone was buying stocks and shares. And one of these top investors said that if we got to the point now where the guy shining your shoes is buying stocks and shares, right? The guy, the guy, the guy, the shoe shiner, right? The humble man whose job it is to polish shoes in the street. He's now buying stocks and shares. That is the time to get out, right? This market has gone over the top. Um, I've got a more recent example. A friend of mine, well, my family were Irish and a friend of mine uh, lives in Ireland and he said that he could see there were big problems coming in Ireland when the taxi driver that took him to the airport was telling him about all the houses he was going to buy. Now, a taxi driver, that's a very noble profession, a very important job. And I've got friends and family members who have done that job. But you wouldn't really anticipate that a taxi driver would be a property magnate, would you? And this, to my friend, was a red flag that Ireland, uh, that credit was too cheap and that the housing market was over the top when his taxi driver had a had a property portfolio. Um, and in the end, there was that massive credit crunch and the crash, and it really, really impacted Ireland massively. They had a housing market crash that was very bad for a lot of people. Um, it just went over the top. So the guy shining shoes is buying shares. The taxi driver has a property portfolio, right? That's when you get out. So Warren Buffett, um, afraid 
when others are greedy, greedy when others are afraid. Go your own way. Go against the grain. So let's say, I don't know, let's say that you are, um, let's say you're an accountant and you're like, do you know what? I'm just going to become a tree surgeon now. I'm going to get into tree surgery. And your friend's like, are you mad? He's like, I know, but this is, um, you know, it's just something I want to do. It might not jump off the page as an idea. And then you go off and you become the world's biggest tree surgeon. And then there's some terrible disease that affects all the trees in the country and you become a millionaire because you're the one that knows how to fix it. But yeah, so go your own way. I think that's a really, really healthy piece of advice from Warren Buffett. Be counterintuitive. Um, It's a bit like trains. Have you noticed how everybody tries to get into the middle carriages of a train? Why don't you just walk to the end of the platform and get into the empty carriage where you get a seat and it's not crowded? Don't be the pack in the middle. Go your own way, baby. And there you go. That's the end of the show. Lots more to get through next time. Thank you for watching and or listening. Listening.